Tom, I always welcome you to the show. Would you like to welcome me today? Well, uh, Jim, I'd, I'd love to welcome you to the show. Well, thank Jim you, Tom. Jim Majors, welcome to the show. Hey, uh, we have one guest today. We get to welcome someone else. We get to welcome someone else. This is a man who... who... needs no welcoming, actually, at the Phoenix, <laughs> because honest to God, he's been here since, holy cow, at least Sweeney Todd, but I think uh, the Cinderella that. thing, was that here? Was that the, well, the, uh, was that the ballet Cinderella uh, thing? Before that. This is a man who has uh, been a part of a lot of notable bands and has been a part of a lot of projects at the Phoenix and uh, onward into his adulthood. He inspires much discussion. <laughs> he, uh, infamous well, well, would be a word. Infamous. Yes, infamous. Infamous. Notorious. Uh, which Notorious. at the Phoenix, we understand infamous. Exactly. And he is Dominic Davi. Dominic Davi, welcome to the show. Thank welcome you. I'm glad show. to be here. What most people know you for is probably your time with Tsunami Bomb, I would say. Either, yes. either that or your time with Love Equals Death. Uh, yeah, both those bands became fairly notable. Generation Y was his first band. Yep. He currently is a publicist for Jello Biafra. What a what a treat that is. Yes, uh, he's a personality. He does marketing <laughs> and promotions for two indie punk labels, Kung Fu Records in Los Angeles and Alternative Tentacles in San Francisco. Yep. He plays bass in The Blast, which will be changing his name to Crash and Attack. And he I also like plays Blast. he also plays yeah, bass in two thing. new projects, a garage punk style band called the Anne Frankenstein's. <laughs> As well as, I, was, I didn't pick that name. As well as a band called the Phantom Skulls, which will involve Tsunami Bomb keyboardist Oubliette. Sure, oh, fantastic. Looks like it's going to, yeah. Bravo. Yeah. Why don't we start right with Tsunami Bomb? Okay. Tsunami Bomb is why most people, I think, know you musically. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, there's other bands that some people will be like, oh, Headboard, you know, and like other things. Oh, shit, I left Generation Headboard World. off the list. Yeah, I wasn't <laughs> headboard, headboard for a little while. Absolutely, you can't so, be both you want to talk? You want to talk infamous Headboard, Jesus. Headboard was very infamous. Yeah, but yeah. you know, as benign as it might have seemed, as I recall, uh, Generation Y, Gen Y? Generation Y did was work. Was also had uh, infamy going for them occasionally. It mm-hmm. seemed to me there was a little bit of, of friction. I can't remember what it was about Gen Y, but there was something about Gen Y also that... Uh, was larger than life. We, Generation Y was a female-fronted band that was yeah. put together, and it was a ska punk band before I knew what ska punk was. Like, I didn't have any idea who Operation Ivy was. My entire introduction to punk rock came from this building, and I started collecting seven inches from bands that were local and put them out. Like, back then, like, everybody had a cassette, and then the really big, cool punk bands had seven inches. Yeah. And Final. that's... Yeah, and then, like... Some would eventually get albums if they went big enough, and nobody really around here really had that. That's really where um, I got introduced to punk rock, and I didn't really know about Operation Ivy or anything else. So when I started Generation Y, people were like, you're kind of like a a weak-ass Operation Ivy. And I was like, (laughs) weak-ass? So you started Generation Y? Yeah, with uh, my friends John uh, Erskine, as he's known now, and then uh, Vanessa Penn and Shane Stevens. And Shane Stevens. Yeah. And uh, we were we were a ska punk band, and we were really innocent, and we covered a couple songs from the seven inches that were around that turned out to be local bands and didn't realize that those bands were in the audience. Yeah. Uh, or we played with them, and they were really touched, and so we were charming. But uh, I started <laughs> that charming. band. Josh, Josh Staples doesn't even know this. Would you describe yourself as charming? 
Would I describe You're, myself yes. as charming? The band oh. was charming. The band was charming. Yeah. Would I describe myself as charming? In those days, yes, you were charming. I think yeah. I was charming then, and I'm charming now. That's But true. maybe in between at but some point. But in between, I was... I've always wanted to pride myself, even back then when I didn't know as much. And, and I know that some of the things that, you know, there's people who have interpreted things in certain ways, and it's, it's unfortunate. And so I never set out to ever, ever, ever hurt anyone's feelings. And I tried to always be really open to other ideas, and I wasn't like that. But, but somebody, I had to kind of push to, like, I always felt like you kind of had to just try and make stuff happen. I wanted to be the person to help make things happen. And, and, uh, I didn't have a lot of patience for, for, I think when I was younger, for things that were just like, that's dumb. That is so dumb. Come on. You know, it's like, we're good. I, so I think, you know, I didn't mean to rub people wrong, but I mean, literally, I started playing music. And jo- like I said, I was about to say, Josh Staples doesn't know this. I've never told him this, and I should, and he'll probably find out now. But I was a humongous conspiracy fan. Oh, yes. I loved them. But so did everybody. Great like, band. They were so good. And I couldn't understand, like, why they just wouldn't go do certain things that I, I just, for me, felt obvious, but for them was just annoying. And you mean what? Uh, like, I remember there was a specific incident, and, uh, and, and this is in no way talking shit. I mean, we're all kids. But there was a there was a radio show in San Maybe this Francisco. was going to get you in trouble. No, if no. You don't you don't think you're no, talking no. shit. Okay. This is, Josh might even remember this. <laughs> yeah. There was like this guy this this guy from a radio show in San Francisco that came to the show, loved conspiracy, and wanted them on the show. And I got to talk to him, and he was like, "Yeah, I want to I want to have them like on my radio show in San Francisco." And I was like, "Oh my god, they got to do this." I don't think it was like Live 105. I think it might have been the co- a college station or something. But it was it was like an opportunity, and I was like, "Josh, dude, guys," and they were wasted. And they were like, whatever, you know, they were like, and they blew him off. Like, and I don't even think I, they probably don't remember this, but I was stunned and I was so mad. I was like, how could you blow this off? This was like an opportunity. I got so mad. I started learning how to play bass and I was going to start my own band. And that's how Generation Y started. That was your answer to that radio show? No, just was, seeing like, yes. I was frustrated because I yes. believed in conspiracy so much. I was like a conspiracy, wow. like I would, they, they, they would be hard pressed to find a bigger fan than I was. I loved them and I've loved Every yeah, single thing Josh has done. Shows well. It was he a great is, band. It was a great yeah. band. And, and it was so good. And it was such a unifying band for here. Yeah. I think almost you could do so well in Petaluma, it was hard to leave. But um, it, I just, I, I wanted to, to do something. Like, I wanted, I got frustrated because I felt like, God, you guys are so good. I feel like you should be bigger. They both inspired me musically to want to play because I loved them. And I loved what they were doing. And it also made me inspired to be like, and and maybe this led me down a path that rubbed some people wrong, but I was like, I am not going to get wasted and, and miss out on stuff. Like I want to take, like if something comes across, I want to be there and be aware to take advantage of it. And I want to make it happen because I, I, I do, I believe that this could, I have a good feeling about this. And like, I think one of the mistakes I made when I was younger is sometimes even I'd be like, I promise you, if you just shut up and do what I say, I promise you, you'll be happy. And I, and that was the wrong way to approach some people. <laughs> But then, you know, on the other hand, there were some people that would like, you know, push back and I'd just be like, no, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go for this. That dude was rock and roll. Yeah. I mean, it was all, it was all like kid, local kid stuff. I mean, really in the end, but I mean, I'm sure there's some people who'd be like, eh, you know. When you went on the road with Tsunami <laughs> Bomb, you, you guys, I think left and didn't come back for what, two or three years it, it felt like. Yeah. We were just constantly on the go. Like there was just, I mean, we were. We to, uh, in some degrees, I think that that band ended up touring itself into the ground. It was really... Yeah. But nobody tells you... You know, that's the thing. Nobody tells you to stop. Nobody tells you right. to relax. Nobody tells you to slow down. Like, 
when I saw uh, Britney Spears have her freak out, like where she <laughs> shaved her head and attacked yeah. a car with an umbrella, I, was, I, yeah. I just watched that like on the news, and I was like, I completely understand. I was close to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because you lose your mind, like, because it, it, you're just going and going and going, and you don't have any kind of life. You're, you're, I mean, you do. I mean, it's so much fun. I mean, looking back, the travel was wonderful. It was an amazing time, but like at the same time, it was exhausting, and you lose perspective. You leave for a while. You don't feel like you change, but everything's different when you get back. Yeah. Bands have broken up. People have broken up. So other people have gotten together. You know, like people have moved on and then you're back a whole building's gone another building's built like the whole town change feels like it this changes town and you're is, back is tough to leave for any pretty right? time and yeah even now same. but i think tsunami bomb is a good place to start so it was around 1997 was when that band started i started that probably around the time that i was god i would have been 23 i think and um i was in headboard and i was starting to get a little unhappy with being in headboard it was it, the the climate and headboard started changing uh, and, uh, I saw, I wanted to do my own project just on the side at first, but then it eventually of course became the main thing. But, uh, I saw this band, what were they called? Um, uh, the white trash debutantes. White played trash a show with debutantes. Them and, yeah. We played a show with wow. them yes. at the showcase theater down South wow. to no one. And, uh, they had, Ginger Coyote, which was the singer. Yes. and the, Yeah, remember? Wow. And then she had, at the time, two Japanese singers on either side of her. Yep. And they were super gorgeous punk rock girls. And they were really nice people besides. They were very nice yeah. people. And so Headboard played with them. And I remember, ta- and I talked to these girls, and they were from Japan, and they were super into punk rock, and they, like, and it reminded me, like, oh, God, I love Japanese culture, like, animation, like, and all these things. And I was a big comic book nerd. and So I started thinking, they got me thinking, in terms of Japanese term, because I was, the, I think naming a band is literally one of the hardest things to do, especially now, because people just grab stuff and take it, yeah. and and I feel like every time you find a band find. name, it's like somebody in Australia has got it, like it's done, it. you know. So, um, I started putting together different combinations, and I stumbled onto Tsunami Bomb, and I thought that just sounds like a comic book come to life, like some gigantic weapon and awesome. It turns out it was a real weapon. It was an Australian weapon designed for World War II where they'd set a bunch of charges underneath and send a tidal wave, and they were planning to do it to Japan. But it never happened because the war ended. I had no idea it was a real thing, but uh, I came up with this name, and I thought it would be really colorful. And so I was dr- in downtown, and there was a sign in the window of the surf shop. Tom might even remember this. You might remember this. I don't know how old you are if you remember this, but there was a sign of a circle with a wave in it and a surfer. And it was like, you know, it was like kind of a, a, a pond, like a sign that was supposed to show like you could surf at this beach kind of thing. And it was all just real simple street signish. And I looked at that and I was like, a circle with a wave in it. Like those circle bombs in Super Mario Brothers that the kid the, with the, the wick. And that's when I drew and I told, told the, um, the girls I was starting the band with at the time. Uh, about it i was like you know a little round bomb with a wick and then the wave in it and that will be yeah. tsunami bomb and eventually the wick became a star and that's how the logo happened and the first person i asked to do it was courtney foster aka oubliette sparks who did keyboard because she was in v- brazil brazil in brazil mm-hmm. uh, she was in it for a few minutes this is a band yeah. that was yeah, a band and that was some some wonderful wonderful kids they were they were absolutely kids galen sharp leah yeah gabe leah. was in and brazil. gabe was in brazil that's where gabe the yeah. drummer from tsunami bomb came from he was in that band as well and he absolutely so yeah i didn't really poach like as they left 
So pe- tsunami bomb, most people know this, but it's very much a petaluma grown organism. Yes. Yes. It was totally a petaluma band. And so a lot of people look at tsunami bomb and they think Agent M, Emily mm-hmm. Whitehurst, who was our first guest. Yeah. Yep. But she was not an original member. No, correct? she was not. Actually, yeah. she was in a band called Plinky, and we would play with them. I started tsunami bomb with Courtney uh, Oubliette, and she became known what people know her better as. And then we literally had to poach everybody. In fact, the first drummer in Tsunami Bomb was Logan Whitehurst because he was my roommate. And that's how I met Emily because I live with Logan. And I had met him, you know, around here uh, in bands as he was playing with Little Tin Frog. Obviously. Little uh, Tin Frog, yeah. uh, Logan Whitehurst of Velveteen, most notably. Brother of uh, Emily Whitehurst and then also brother of Elliot Whitehurst who's in Trebuchet. Yeah, yeah. It's a very musical family. One of the kindest... Yes. sweetest, most talented people oh, I've ever met. And I miss so him much every talent. day. He yep. is an incredible person. Uh, from an incredible family. All the Whitehursts are very, Boy, very good. Yes. Uh, but he was, uh, but, but, and I say this with complete respect to Elliot and Emily, like Logan was another thing altogether from everybody. He was a complete genius. And okay. he was kind. And he was the first drummer to Tsunami yeah. Bomb. Wow. And uh, he helped us like write songs and, uh, and it, yeah, it took a little while. There was a revolving door in Tsunami Bomb for quite a few months, which is why I think Emily said, and I agree, that it came together when Emily, around the time Emily joined, because Plinky, her band, which we would play to, and we had actually wanted to do a split seven inch with. Plinky recorded their side, and we were going to record ours. But by the time we recorded ours, our singer left. She was going to move. And then we lost our guitar player we had just borrowed. At that time in Tsunami Bomb, it was a revolving door because we were trying to make it work. Courtney and I wanted that band to happen so badly, so we were just begging and borrowing anyone who would. And they weren't. They were like, "Okay, well, I'll play a couple shows, but that's it." But then when Plinky had something where their guitar player left, their drummer Brian Plink was what he went by, Brian Burke. He became the guitar player, and he didn't know how to play guitar. So if I had been picky, that would have been the moment. But he was such a great guy, and he was like, "No, I'm gonna learn guitar. I will do it." And he was so great. And uh, he came over and picked up guitar. And Emily took over singing. And so by the time we recorded our the other half of the 7-inch, they were in the band. And the B-Movie Queens, our first 7-inch, is a split where Emily sings both sides. So some people remember it as it all being Tsunami Vaughn, but technically it's two separate bands. And uh, wow, yeah, and it just all became, by the time we put it out, like the Tsunami Bomb side had been Plinky and Tsunami Bomb merging and then coming into one band. So Tsunami Bomb was in the beginning just like any other band that would play in Petaluma. And uh, you're right. I mean, you yeah. just have your friends would come and you probably develop somewhat of a local following. We would beg people to come out. And yeah, punk, and I mean, punk rock band. With keyboards and, with, you know, two girls singing, two girls in the band. It was unusual yeah. at the time. It was. Yeah. How did you break out of that glass ceiling? You know, it, it, what it, happened that made it so you were able to go farther than the other bands you were playing with. I had learned a lot while I was in Headboard. Headboard had almost been signed by a major. Uh, and I learned that one of the mistakes that a lot of the bands would be making was that we would, at, during that time, and maybe even now, I, I don't know, but we'd play the opening of an envelope. But we would play anywhere, everywhere, for anything. And I realized that I wanted my band to be something that people were excited about, so I let it breathe. So we'd play a show and then we'd wait three months and then we'd play another one at the Phoenix. We would never play the Phoenix every month. 
we wouldn't do that. We weren't the house band. If I'm doing my job right, I, I do try and warn bands off of playing too often in, in this, uh, not just in the Phoenix, but in, in the, whole, the whole market. And they'll try. They'll try yeah, to play they, it all well, the time. Of course, they, and they want to. They want to play as much as they can. Yeah. Now, did you pay like a publicity company to get your records out oh, there? Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Whose we hand, didn't have the money to Whose do hands that. did it get into? Well, here's, here's what happened also. Like, um, I would put on occasionally shows at the Phoenix, too. The Tom was always really good about letting me do that. And then Tsunami Bomb, I, I put on... On, uh, well, there's two things. One thing I uh, I put on a show with Groovy Ghoulies, and yes. the Groovy Ghoulies, I pulled Kepi aside, and at that time, I wanted to be on Lookout Records so bad. I didn't know that that at that time it wasn't a good label to go with anymore, but like I wanted to be on Lookout, and I asked Kepi, the singer from Groovy Ghoulies, and he still plays. He's a great, great guy. And I was like, how do I? Does my band become your band? Like, how do I get on a label? How do I do this? And he goes, you know what? He goes. <laughs> and he has a very distinct voice, which I will not try and copy, but it's awesome. And he was just like, you know, there's no A&R people for indie, indie labels. It's the bands. You got to play with the bands. If the bands love you, they'll bring it to the right people. Like, you know, so play with the, the label you want to be on. Play with those bands. Get good enough to open for them. Play with them. Get to know them. And be cool. Be nice. And, and be good. And that's what's going to help. Uh, another thing that I did also is before the band even existed, like especially back then it was easy. I think a lot of people rely on internet too much, but I made a bunch of stickers that said Tsunami Bomb and I put them all over the Bay Area at every club. So when I started telling people to come to our shows, they were like, I think I've heard of you guys. I was like, yeah, I've stuck it over every urinal in the Bay Area. So I imagine that you probably have. I have stickers everywhere. Like I put stickers Everywhere. Tom, as a venue owner, do you like it when people put stickers I on your shit? Stickers. <laughs> oh my god! I think I got in there before though. This was this was years and years ago. The thing so is, yeah, you did, but pay the money, get the good stickers. So when we got to take them off. They come off in one piece. This was Please. not a good sticker. This was no, it was, it was a not. paper sticker. I know it was. Oh, so man. basically, one thing led to another. Well, what ended up happening was initially we played with a band that I had become friends with in Headboard. It was a band called Lucky Strike, a really talented band from Sacramento. Remember? A great band. Great band. Great they really took people. off, didn't they? They, they did. They, they, sure they did, did really yeah, well. They were wonderful. They uh, were on a label called Tomato Head Records with Chuck Phelps, from, who was the drummer from Skank and Pickle. He stuck his neck out. Like, Tsunami Bomb, uh, Emily saw it this way too, and we, we believed really strongly in building a street team from the day one, like the stickers before we even played. Well, a street team was really important in those it, days. It's, you know what, I still think it can be. You just, you just, you, the whole point is reaching out to these people that actually care and making them feel like they can, they can be a part of something, like that's special. And I think a lot of bands don't, just expect people to love it and care about it. But like Tsunami Bomb, we would, we would make stuff specifically for certain people. Like limited edition things anytime we could. We did that in our entire career. Emily was always really good about finding really great deals on making stuff. And we would put together like whether it was a cardboard coffin box for a special Halloween show that we played at Gilman. Or we would like meet people at the show. And literally when we... Lucky Strike, we played with Lucky Strike a lot, and they took us out on our first tours and stuff, and that's how we met Chuck Phelps from Tomato Head, and he signed us because he liked us, and the songs were catchy. Uh, you know what? I'm actually getting ahead of myself. My God, I actually forgot a step. What happened first was that Hunter Bergen, bass player for AFI, actually stumbled onto us, I think because he actually had a crush on the first singer, 
And uh, he might he might argue, but this is really what was happening. He was flirting with Kristen, who was the first singer in Tsunami Bomb. And he started coming around. You remember this? He started coming around. Tom does a nod. And he liked the show, and he uh, said that he was starting a label called Checkmate Records, and he wanted to put out our 7-inch. This was after we put out that split. And I can't believe I skipped over this. So we went and recorded, and he helped pay for it, at Grizzly Studios with Roger Tushan, and uh, recorded uh, Mayhem on the High Seas. And it was a great 7-inch. It was really fun. It's become a big, huge collector's item. We had to beg people to take these seven inches for three dollars, and now the, the highest I saw them go on eBay was like three hundred bucks. And I can, and they, wow. I think they still go for about a hundred. How many do you have? Excellent. I have a few, but it's yeah. funny because Jello Biafra keeps hitting me up, going, he, he liked Tsunami Bomb, and he's like, you got to bring me some Tsunami Bomb vinyl. I was like, yeah, you and everyone else, you know, yeah, it's worth a hundred bucks each. Of course, you want a Tsunami Bomb vinyl. Hey, you're already a publicist. <laughs> you don't need to win him over anymore, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. right? I'm trying to get people to like it, you know, win win people over for Jello, and like yeah. I don't. Know. So it's cool that he likes it though, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he put us out, and actually that helped really big because AFI was blowing up. Yeah. They were so they were still on Nitro at that time, and that was like the Art of Drowning kind of era, the you know, and the the uh, Total Mortal um, time period on Nitro, and it's like they kind of went we without intending to because Hunter put it out. It kind of became like AFI had such a strong following. AFI kind of went, we like Tsunami Bomb, so their fans started to be like. We like Tsunami Bomb, too. And what year was this, and how long had you been a band? Probably about two years. That was like in the first two years. Yeah, because so that was our big lucky break, was Hunter was kind enough to put out the 7-inch, and then playing with, around the same time, playing with uh, Lucky Strike brought us into Chuck Phelps from Tomato Head, and he got behind it. And I always loved Skink and Pickle. They were an amazing. Oh, yeah. uh, that was great. Them and The Conspiracy were my two huge oh, yes. loves as far as music goes. And um, so that led us to doing that. So that's how we started getting further along than, than I think a lot of people locally. I, I spaced out the band. We tried to play really, I tried to plan out our shows. And we tried, we also, you know, we just, we all wrote, like I wrote some great songs. We all wrote some great, which worked really hard on our songs. We practiced a lot. Like we loved our band. We really believed in it. And I think that, that we were sincere and it was fun. And so AFI helped big uh, and Hunter with putting out that seven inch, then Chuck picked it up and then it got really hard because we were starting to tour and we were getting behind stuff. And so we had taken out, we had gotten out of the local level, but we were still trying to break through. So it starts we, to get expensive at that it point. It gets really expensive. Like, and believe it or not, like every, they deny it. Like a lot of, of these labels have tried to deny it to me, but every single independent punk label turned us down. You would send them your press pack or whatever and say, yeah. hey, give us a chance. Well, what happened was also um, we played a show because Lucky Strike got a booking agent by the name of Dan Garcia at Royal Dan Flesh Garcia. Booking. Yeah, yeah, great guy. Great guy. And uh, he booked Lucky Strike. So we would play with like They said, no, let's play with our friend Tsunami Bomb. And he started liking us. And he booked the Ataris. And the Ataris started playing some shows. And we got on to the, we kind of piggybacked with all three. And the Ataris, they didn't watch us. But the wives and girlfriends did, and they loved us, and they got our seven inches and stuff, and those guys started hearing about us, and they even, I got contacted by Chris Crow saying, you know, my wife loves you guys, you know, I hear, see you guys all the time, and uh, so he started saying, you know, they, they would invite us on show around that time, like, because we had the EP out on Tomato Head, Dan Garcia picked us up as a booking agent, and that was a big break, and we started playing was, shows going good. from here down to Southern California, and then out to... 
uh, all the way out to El Paso as far as we go, like a, a long weekend, long weekend. We just haul ass. We played Vegas. We played Arizona, New Mexico. Like we just kept playing that L that everybody ignores down south over. So it gets interesting at that point because for like two years, you guys were relentlessly pounding the pavement. Yeah. And then you start to get noticed. Yeah. And then it becomes less about putting stickers above urinals and less about making coffins for Gilman mm-hmm. and more about kind of trusting these people who know you to sort of elevate To get you, you on. You're playing, playing the gigs. Yeah, yeah, you're playing the right shows. You're playing out there. And so Chris Rowe took it on himself to try and push us to some labels. And he would call me. And this is the guy from the Atari. The singer of the Ataris. Yeah. And he would call me up and he'd be like, I want you to call Fat Records. And I was like. I, I don't know Fat Records. He's like, no, you got to go call Fat Records and ask. I told them your call. I, I want them to sign you, so so go call them. And I was like, but I don't... But, and he's like, just do it. And he'd hang up and he gave me the number and hang up. It's like, oh. And so I called Fat Records and I'd be like, hi. And I talked to Mark, the general manager at the time, who's really nice. But at the time, I was like, hi, uh, I'm Dominic. I'm from the band Tsunami Bomb. And uh, Chris Rowe told me, from the Atari's, told me to call you guys. And he's like, yeah, hold on one second. And I was like, okay. And I was on hold for a minute and he came back. He's like, yeah, I talked to Aaron and Mike and they don't want to sign you. They don't really like your name. So sorry. And I was like, ah, what the? Oh, okay. So, all right. And then like. Well, they, that was easy. Yeah. I was like, okay, that's done. And then uh, they denied that later, but no, they totally did it. And then uh, uh, somebody else tried to push us to Epitaph. I think Dan did. And then they said, no, we don't sign girl bands. You guys were not edgy enough for that's Epitaph. That's very interesting. Yeah. We talked about that last week. No, yeah. we don't sign girl bands. I bet you anything yeah. they would deny that now. Uh, they actually, the, when I talked to them, they told me, like the last time I talked to some of the people from Epitaph about it, they said there was actually a very big debate that people got mad in the staff that they didn't pick us up. Is because there were some people who were like, no, we love them. This is such a good band and they're blowing up. And then others were like, nah. nah." And uh, I was like, but you got distillers. And they're like, that's Tim's label. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, like, so we got passed over. And then like people were trying to push us because we were slowly, we were playing more and more shows. And like, do you believe, even though it was essential to the band, in your opinion, to have a female front person? Do you believe that there was some sexism at play which hindered some of your success? Well, you know, I've never picked anybody to sing for my bands based on, like, I, I didn't go out and try and find a, a girl singer. I, f- I found a woman singer. I, f- I found my friends who sang. I mean, Emily was is a t- very talented singer, very, at the time, had become a really, really close friend of mine, and she was just awesome, and, like, it, she was so fun, and, and so it just was a natural fit. It wasn't like I was trying to, like, Tsunami Bomb will have a girl singer. It just, before her, Kristen was a singer in headboard and had become our singer. So like it just, it just happened. You know, it's like, I've had people go like, why do you always have like crazy singers? Like I don't have crazy singers. I have good singers. Like they're just great people that are talented. I don't care whether they're. So it wasn't necessarily by design, but it was a female fronted band. But it was a female fronted band. And yes, there was an incredible amount of sexism to, to the point where I, I, I remember that when we started, like Courtney never cared. Like she, she was, that was her attitude. Like she was like, I don't care. Fuck everybody. But I think Emily started, I remember when we started playing, Emily would wear dresses and skirts on stage. And it got to the point where she stopped. And I know she felt like, at the time, I mean, I don't know if she remembers it that way, but I remember she was starting to feel uncomfortable. So that's when she started wearing- creeps in the audience? Just, there was a lot of discouragement over the fact that there wasn't a lot of girls playing. So it was like, they just had this in the punk element. And to be taken seriously, like the first thing people would say is like, I don't want to hear a song about your boyfriend. 
And it's like, th- so she was really conscious about what she sang about. Like she sang, she would, if you listen to the early songs, especially like later, she started opening it up by the time we did ultimate escape. But like, but invasion from within mayhem on the high seas, you listen to that stuff. It's like, there's nothing that denotes a boy, girl. But I mean, she's just singing about kind of open, vague, more vague concepts. And it's, and that was on purpose. I, I think she felt, I, I know she felt uncomfortable when going on tour, we encountered stuff like, you know, you, you, whereas a lot of punk bands would crash at people's houses. We were one of the first to forego our per diem or breaking up of money because I would, we would go to a house and these guys that seemed perfectly cool. And maybe if we were an all guy band, they would be fine. Would start saying stuff like that was uncomfortable. Like they'd be like, okay, well you guys start taking a shower, but uh, it's not so much hot water. So the girls might want to pair up with me. You know, and the girls yeah. would complain about somebody just getting drunk and kind of staring and not feeling really comfortable about getting in a sleeping bag and sleeping on the floor. So we were like early on, we was like, okay, that's it. We're, I, I was like, we're guys with your permission. I'd like to vote that we just stay in hotel rooms and that's where our per diem goes. So yeah, Tsunami Bomb faced a tremendous amount of sexism when we came from, <laughs> when we came out, like people were just passing on it. And in fact, the reason Tsunami Bomb really finally got that big break is because the Ataris were playing with us a bunch and and we're singing our praises and you know hunter was always a big 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 champion of us and uh finally the vandals said hey yeah you should play some shows with us Uh, and they 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 offered us their crappy shows i think which was like i think they offered us like phoenix arizona which was good then we were going to play El I think El Paso with them. We were going to play like Albuquerque. I think you got them back. Didn't you bring them to the Phoenix? Yeah. <laughs> we okay. might have actually at one point brought them back. But they, the funny thing was is they thought they were giving us the lame shows. But what they didn't know, that's pretty much where we had just toured for years when we didn't have anybody. We'd just go down, down south, and then over all the way to Texas. So we had built up a following. So we played with them. If they'd have taken us to maybe like Nevada or like out to Salt Lake City, like we would have played to nobody. But there we had a huge draw. So when we played with the Vandals, it became a big deal and we sold a ton of merch. And they came to us and said, you know what? We would like to sign you to Kung Fu. And the reason why is we've never seen a female fronted band sell as much merch as you guys, except for No Doubt. Except for No Doubt. And they said, because female fronted bands don't sell merch. Like the Vandals and everybody at Kung Fu was like, we'd like to tell you that's not what happens. But that's what happens. And at that point, you had to leave Tomato Head. Well, you, to, you know, one thing about indie punk labels is like everything's normally a one-shot deal. Like, you know, Tomato Head's not going to sign you for three albums. They, they can't. Like, Kung Fu gave us an album with two options. Like, so they have the option to pass or go. Um, so it wasn't like leaving Tomato Head. Like, we had done that EP. He got to keep that EP. You know, it's actually out of print now. Um, cause he's not really, tomato head's not really active, but yeah. So, you know, we, we didn't leave, but yeah, we, but moved it was, forward. you were progressing. We were progressing yeah. to the next yeah. step. And for him, it was actually a, a great thing. Yeah. But yeah, he, and he did a lot of great things for us. Like when, when we came out with, uh, the invasion from within EP, um, on tomato head, he came up to me, he gave me a call and he talked to Emily and I, and he's like, Hey, I got an idea. I was like, okay. He's like. This How many Chuck, people? Chuck, Chuck yeah. He's like Tomato Head Records. Chuck helps him. Tomato Head Records. Yeah. I got an idea. How many people do you guys have on your 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 street team? Like your main street team? And I was like, we have about a hundred people scattered throughout a couple states uh, of like our captains. You know, and they were you had some some fierce fans. Yeah, like a hundred, hundred and fifty. And he's like, okay, I'm gonna send each and every one of them a free copy of the album. Oh, sweet. And, I, and that was before the internet had really taken off on everyone just being able to download it. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to take a risk. I think that's the way to go. 
That was a brilliant idea. It was. It was a brilliant idea. And those people loved getting that. I mean, imagine at that time, like your favorite, one of your, one of your favorite, like small bands, like sending you an album, like boom, you get it for free. He just paid for that. Yeah, he just did that. And it's easy to say something like, ah, you know, Snow and Bombs was the right place, right time. And that's accurate. It's true. But at the same time, there were so many people that helped. Oh, yeah. And you guys were your butts off for crying out loud. You guys were on the road for a long time. But if you hadn't been doing Phoenix Theater in the first place, it never would have existed. You gave us a place to play. I mean, Avi, uh, who uh, does uh, Silver Sprocket and Springman Records, he did us, he was this kid, and he asked me to put a song on his comp. he called it punk rock strikes and i gave him lemonade and he had on it a couple bands that he had begged all small and he followed the warp tour and he sold those comps for a dollar each he sold fifty thousand of them for a dollar each in the lines in front of warp tour that made us huge we were that helped too like so it's like do you find it insulting when people say right place, right time? No, it, not at all. Because it's more than that. I think it's more than that. Yeah. I just read a quote that's floating around the internet from Peter Dinklage when they say like, oh, uh, you know, people say that I'm lucky. I, I hate that term that takes so much disrespect out of like somebody else yeah. working. I mean, I, did I feel very lucky when I was struggling in a small apartment and paying pennies for top ramen? Like, you know, I got lucky. I, I was fortunate to meet some really wonderful people. I worked very hard and some people yeah. believed in me. Now you could say that's lucky, but I think that disgrace is like somebody who you would consider unlucky. Like all yeah. of us work really hard. And yeah. I think that it's accurate to say that Tsunami Bomb was in the right place at the right time, but it's a, that there's a bigger story of a lot of people who cared about that band yeah. and made it and helped. I mean, yeah, Tom and, helped. And like, well, and a great band, helped. though. You it, guys were a great it band. It was fun. It was yeah. a lot of fun. And, you know, and there's a chemical balance that happens. I do feel that Tsunami Bomb started declining when Courtney left, Oubliette left, when Brian left, our guitar player, and well, name, people started changing. Now, I think was, it was that around when you left off, which was you were signing on to this new To label. Kung Fu Records, yeah. um, Courtney Oubliette left. She didn't feel like... I don't want to speak for her, but I think at the time she felt like the climate of the band was sort of a changing. And that really upset me because I, I took that kind of hard. And for a while we didn't talk. Um, we're really close now. She's wonderful. But like it hurt. It hurt because I, I, you know, she was the first one that I had asked to be there and like her leaving felt like I was abandoning. And that's probably why a lot of things that contribute to like the kind of reputation I had because I took stuff so freaking seriously at those times, you know, those years like in headboard and, and in, uh, Tsunami Bomb is like, I was just so sincere about everything that sometimes it's just, it was, it was all so big a deal. Like now I, sh- you know, I how would you, would, so you say that's maybe why some of the reputation stuff happens. Do you think your reaction to things like that would be negative and then people would hear that story? I mean, possibly. I mean, like, I, I mean, I think it carried over in other things, you know what I mean? Like in other like situations that perhaps people interpreted, but I mean, really, uh, I was really bummed when Courtney left. I felt like the dynamics started changing. Then Brian left and Brian was such a sweetheart and a guitarist. Like yeah. when he left, the dynamic changed. And, but uh, and we brought in uh, Mike Griffin, who's a very talented guitar player, yeah. but like the dynamic changes the I, and this is no offense to any other format of tsunami bomb that came after. There were so many talented musicians. Matt was a great bass player who replaced me, uh, um, what's his name? Jay Northington, uh, who's in Nothington. Oh, yeah. Fantastic guitar player. There's yes. a lot of great players that played in Tsunami Bomb after. But that invasion, that original core group of Brian, Courtney, Emily, Gabe, and myself, that had a that had a that had something. 
And when you mess with that, like a lot of bands, a cool people listening grassroots to grassroots feeling. Yeah, to it. it was at, family, and it yeah. was there was a, there was a balance there. And I mean, we, people would get mad at each other. You know, you get resentful because you're touring and people drive you crazy. And I heard this quote from Joe Strummer when he was talking about the Clash and how they pushed out their drummer Topper. And he said he regretted it because he's like, you know, if you have a band and it works and there's like this feeling and this chemical to it of these combination of personalities and you think, oh my God, it'll be so much better if that asshole is just gone. If we just get rid of that person, it'll be so much better. And he's like, if it works and it's special, don't change it. Stop yeah. messing with it. Realize that these people are who they are and what you're doing is more important because when you change it, it changes. And I think that's you normally know, I'm started to change. And then... It, it just, you know, it started getting further and further away of what it was. Did you see that, Tom, uh, hosting them when they were younger and then when they came back with the new You know, I always like bands' first incarnations quite a bit because usually if, if it's the local bands that I watch uh, get started, uh, it's, it's usually a crew of friends of kids that I've seen grow up together. So for me, that's, that's always been part of the fun is watching these kids gel into bands. Plus, I've never... <laughs> I never trusted rock and roll as a way to make a living anyway. <laughs> it's a terrible so, way to make a living. You, know, you do it so, for love. I, you know, I always assume that uh, these kids are going to do this for a while and then go out and, and uh, you know, be adults somewhere. <laughs> yeah. But, so, uh, so you signed yeah. on to Kung Fu? Yeah, Kung Fu Records. And how long from that until the end of the band? It was a couple years. Couple um, years. I left... Uh, they asked me to leave. <laughs> Tell us about that. No. Why were you asked to leave, Dominic? That was actually a surprise. Um, you know, it, it was it's a tough one because like we were touring a lot, and I think it started uh, becoming to a point where I had felt at that time that we were getting further away from what. I loved about Tsunami Bomb. I started feeling that, like, you know, losing all those, those keyboards and some of the parts of us along the way, we were moving further away from that. And we had had a very difficult time recording The Ultimate Escape. And I lo we loved being on Kung Fu. Like, you know, for the most part, everything was great. They're a great label, great people. I work for them now. Obviously, I like them. Um, and I wanted to take, I wanted to kind of bring back keyboards into the mix. I wanted to mix the sound that we had put on an Ultimate Escape along with the sound that we had had in Invasion from Within. And I do feel like uh, there was elements of Tsunami Bomb at that time that didn't want that. That were looking into another direction, kind of getting more influenced by the sounds of Thrice or Alkaline Trio. And there was a certain creative parting of the ways going on there. And... Um, Honestly, you know, like to a certain degree, I think maybe, you know, Emily and Mike were just tired of my shit. <laughs> like, you know, it's like you're pushing stuff and you're trying to make things happen. And at the time I was actually having a real difficult time because my parents were divorcing and uh, there was a lot of, lot of personal stuff going on that made things complicated for me. You guys have been out on the road for, you yeah. know, and we've been solid for a couple of years at that yeah, point. Yeah, a couple yeah. of years. Because Emily mentioned that there was maybe a several year period where you guys were just touring. Just and touring. touring. And touring. Yeah, yeah and, and you know what? Like, you could take the best four people in the world uh -huh. and put them in a van. Like, Mother Teresa, <laughs> the yeah. Pope, you know, you could put in like every wonderful people, your favorite people, and you think it's going to be amazing. But when you're working that hard and you're going, 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 you're tired and it's tough and you're not, you don't have a ton of money. It's just grinds you down. And like, and then you tour through Nebraska in late July. <laughs> That's the death knell for so many bands. Oh, well, you know, Nebraska just goes on and on. 
yeah, no, it's it, there's there's it just it just got hard, and I think that we lost a certain amount of insight. And I think where I would have liked to take in tsunami bomb and would have been pushing for it was not where the rest of them wanted to take it, uh, or at least I think at the time Emily and Mike and then Gabe was like, oh, I don't want this to end. And you know, and I and I you know I look at it. It was at the time I really broke my heart. Like it was really heartbreaking. Like I couldn't believe that that had happened. Uh, that that they didn't want to play with me anymore. Um, but that's how they felt, you know, but then again, it was like one of the things that made things complicated is I was one of the, the founding member, one of the only founding members in the band at that time. So you can't really kick me out completely, you know? So I still retained ownership of, of it. And at what point did ownership of the band present itself? Because obviously when you're Towards on the, the local end. level, uh, the nobody owns the name. Right. Well, it becomes complicated when you have, you know, it wasn't I, I I heard Emily refer to the legal troubles that made her really uh frustrated at the end of Tsunami Bomb on your show and in other times and her and I haven't really talked about it. Um You haven't spoken to her in ten years. We haven't really spoken in ten years, no. And that's too bad. I mean she's incredibly talented, very, very cool person. Uh and her and her husband and I we really don't speak and that's unfortunate. I mean I hope that, that changes someday. But like it's it, it will or it won't. And then, so full disclosure, her husband, Doug Elkin, was Nomi Bomb's tour manager. Yes, yes. Okay. And you know what? There was a time when I would have, I easily said, I love those guys. I mean, they were, they, and I still think they're really good people. I think that just, you know, at this time, after these years, I realize it's, it's, it's all silly. You know, I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen your own silly arguments stuff's been talking here i'm sure you've seen many like feuds that go on the king of silly you know i heard her interview on the show and she was incredibly kind in referencing me and i feel the same way i mean she's i think she to this day she's a fantastic singer a really talent a real talent uh it was really great her husband doug is a very very driven guy very good what he does he works now for golden voice uh, at the think, Regency Ballroom yeah, the Regency in the Warfield Ball. yeah, in San Francisco. I think there, you know, I wish them nothing but happiness, and hopefully yeah. one day we will be able to talk and be okay. And uh, you know, one day wake up that it's silly. I mean, I hope so. So you guys got signed to Kung Fu, and then you're just touring, 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 and then you know, original members start leaving the band. Yeah, and then ultimately you're asked to leave the band. Yeah, they just you know, I think they didn't want to see. They did. They. <laughs> just tired of my crap and they were um really not um they didn't like what i had to say about where i'd like to take the next record and what i was trying to push for and i think it was different from where they wanted now let's let's come back to that in a second because we're we're leaving out like you know this is like a big moment you get this is like probably the height of your uh, popularity of a band that you've been in yes so what was the highest moment you know, what would you say, like, oh, I can't believe that we're doing this. This is so great. You know what I mean? I was shocked to learn that the band was never really economically viable for you guys well, personally. Well, you know, this is the funny thing about bands that I think a lot of people don't realize. Yes, when we played the Phoenix Theater or Slim's or we played down in L.A. at the Capitol Theater or, or if that's what it's Colonial, Colonial was Sacramento. We played New York. Or we played certain cities. It was humongous and we made a ton of money. But then there's Nebraska. Right. Then there's Kansas. Then there's certain cities where we don't make as much. It never works out like that. It's not an even, like we don't come up. So yes, if every show was like a Phoenix Theater show for us across the country, then it would have been incredibly economically viable. But Portland, we drew maybe 200, maybe 500. 
we drew a lot when we played with the Vandals or somebody bigger. But, but then when we support. played on our own. Yeah, we're support. We're Two, not getting paid getting as much. Two hundred bucks or something to split among the four. Yeah, of you or five hundred. Yeah, it's, it's not the yeah. same. You don't yeah. do music to get rich. You do music because yeah. you love it and you have yeah. to. No, but everybody has heard of Tsunami Bomb if you're a part of the music scene around right. here. So I think it's shocking to hear that while you guys were doing that, never was it really like, okay, well, I can afford my rent for the month, and you know, yeah, this band no. is completely self-sufficient, especially when you're touring. You know, for the whole year. Right. I we got to. A point where we were able to pay ourselves a small salary which was which was as emily mentioned in her interview that was very accurate and uh, we were considering doing uh benefits a small cheap benefit yeah. package which was amazing and that was uh and that was all pretty much because of how much merch we did uh had we yeah. continued i think it would have continued to grow and that would have changed but there really isn't something that everyone and i hate to break everyone's heart that might be listening but there's no middle class in music you're broke or you're rich. Or you're There's rich, like, that's yeah. it. There's no like, we're getting by. I mean, maybe if you're doing certain, like maybe if you once were big and you had a couple hits and now you're coasting doing fairs and you're doing these big events and you're coasting, you make yeah. a lot of money to come out. You know, I'm sure Cake makes a lot of money now because, yeah. you know, they had a couple hits and they're guaranteed to pack a house, you know, even though they're not making hits now. So they're probably a middle class in music. You know, they're doing okay. But like they had a moment where they were, you know, a lot of money came in, but it doesn't work that way. It's not a blanket thing. We don't, we didn't draw 5,000 people across the country. We drew a thousand people here, 200 people there, a hundred people there, 50 people there. It's like the more middle of the country you got, the quieter it got. And yeah. it works like that for everybody. But yeah. our merch kept us going. Uh, the warp tours, would only pay us enough to pay for the bus to keep up with the work tour. Right. See, the <laughs> bus, I think, for a lot of young bands, the bus is the first mistake. Yeah. That thing is, is uh, in, in your days, it was about $1,000 a day to operate those things, mm-hmm. as I recall. Mm-hmm. And now, they're, I understand, they're up to about 1500 Yeah. So I know when I see a bus backing into the Phoenix, $1,500 of that guarantee is going towards that bus. And it's nice to be comfortable. It really is. But, uh, boy, is that it's a huge expense on the tour. What's more is that gas. When I was yep. in Tsunami Bomb touring, we could pay, get $100 to open, okay, play some small show, or, you know, 100 bucks for just playing a small show on our own on those first tours. And that was two gas tanks for a 15-passenger van. That yep. was $40 you to fill the tank. so much farther. And then you had $20 left over to put towards yep. the next. By the time I was in Love Equals Death on Fat Records, it cost $80 to fill yeah, the you tank. Bet. See, gas money used to be, uh, bands could come in and say, can we get gas money? Boy, I could throw them a 20 and that would be gas money. Now, holy cow. No, you <laughs> Gas can't. money is, yeah, 80 bucks if you're if we're going to fill your tank for 100, you. 100, I think it's yeah. 100, over 100 for a 15 passenger. <laughs> yeah, it probably is. Now, but yeah. of course, it all seemed like this was just the stepping blocks to a place where it's going to keep growing. It's going to keep getting bigger. Our salary can get a little bit bigger. We can do a benefits package. You know, that's what it seems like, right? There's a measured insanity and delirium of naivete with about bands like you just hope for the best but you know you but you could have never hoped to have gotten to where you gotten in your wildest dreams or maybe your wildest dreams maybe you could have but i mean you, i don't know i could i have a pretty good imagination yeah, that's what i'm saying that's why i stopped myself <laughs> but, but what i'm saying is you're like holy shit we're actually doing this wow yeah. no it was it was an incredible time of my life and it was it was a wonderful to see people like going to japan and having a kid come up to us at the Tower Records in Japan ask us to sign his two seven inches Mayhem in the High Season B movie Queens going how yeah. did this get here Warp Tour and seeing a sea of heads of 10,000 people on the main stage as we're playing and they're all dancing to our shows and, yeah you know, some of them are singing your lyrics yeah, every, yeah it was huge. an incredible moment yeah. it was it was fantastic so obviously you thought it was going to keep growing yeah 
was it a blindsiding for them to ask you to leave the band? Yes. 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 At the time, it was it was it was heartbreaking. I you know, and I uh, I don't know if they realize how heartbreaking that was, but it was really incredibly difficult. And you know, I talk to Gabe now. We talk. You know, we're fine. And like, um, I you know, and I I I would like like I said, like you know, perspective goes a long way. I don't sit there and go by any means was I innocent and just the victim. I mean, we were touring nonstop, and I'm sure. I was really annoying. You know, I'm sure I was difficult, uh, you know, about how certain things. And, and it just, it's hard. It was really hard. A lot of stuff was happening at that time that I think they don't even know was happening in my life. And it's just, I think that they sat there probably getting annoyed with me, not understanding why I was like acting the way I was or being short or annoyed or weird or distant. And, you know, then I was talking about what I wanted to do next with the band, what I felt was, you know, best for us. And I think they just, you know, got to a point where they're just like i just uh no they weren't seeing it'll it. be better without them we could we could change this and be and be happier you know and you know i think it got complicated you know it got hard I, I i did take care of a lot of the business emily and i and mike and gabe we were a good team you know i, I think that the best team was emily gabe brian courtney and myself but i think it was a good team on kung fu mike was a great guitar player everybody was trying you know gabe was a great drummer we all worked you hard had, yeah you had some great solid players you guys were a solid unit yeah. then and if you were going to go out and and try and stretch your market a tighter unit was probably not a bad idea necessarily yeah and i mean it, it just it i think it got hard so i was blindsided it definitely hurt and it was a prolonged debate and kind of dispute over how it all ended and even like as it ended um control of tsunami bomb is uh split between emily gabe and myself like we're the controlling entities of tsunami bomb and and, and you know and was that something you worked on after they asked you to leave or had the had the building block i refused put? to be bought out i refused to sign off on anything okay I, I absolutely and so when they were not. when they're asking you to leave at some point it came to okay well now we need to take care of this legal yeah, aspect, you that legal aspect and you dug your heels in yeah i said no yeah, absolutely not. And then that uh, I'm sure, I, lo- I'm sure a lot of the the conflict of the following ten years stems from those debates, and those conversations. I yeah. was difficult. I was yeah. a difficult person. Yeah. I'm sure you know. Uh, I'm sure the band Emily, Mike, and Gabe during that time would definitely feel it. And I and I hope they hear this and know that I I know that and I I am sorry for it. You know, it was a hard time then. I had a hard time. So I was trying to do all those things, and and it was a hard time. And I think that. Um, it definitely contributed. And then digging in my heels like, and not signing off on everything, I don't regret that. Do I regret the the fight that it became? Like, yeah, of course. You know, I, I don't. I, I didn't want it to, to, to get to a point where we were all not talking for 10 years. And definitely now after 10 years and having that perspective, I, I would... Uh, I regret that we all fell apart so far. And, but lately I've been talking to... Courtney, Brian, and Gabe, a lot, you know, a bit about Tsunami Bomb, about co- some ideas for what to do, and we'll hopefully approach Emily about. So, and, do you still own? Good. Do you guys still own the name? I guess yes. you do. Yeah. Son of a gun. Gabe, good. Emily, and I do technically. Though Brian oh. never signed off anything, and he pointed out like I never signed anything, and I was like, Ooh, <laughs> you okay. didn't. But yeah, so good. you know, it it still exists. It's still out there. How long did the band last after you left? Well, they put out another album. Yeah, they did. Let's see, I was out in 2003 at the end of the summer, so I think they went on for another few years, two years. How did you feel about the album they released when you weren't in the band? 
I thought it had its great moments, but I thought that um, I think that it was in direct response to how hard Ultimate Escape was to make. And I think that they wanted to make something that was a little easier. Where did you guys record Ultimate Escape? Down in LA. You did, yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, it was a hard, that was a hard experience. That was really tough. We, 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 we butted heads with the producer a lot making the album. The album's good. It's a great album, Ultimate yeah, Escape. But it was a very is. difficult process. And Emily you sings a lot about it. You guys actually gained a lot of fans, I think, with that, yes, with that album. Yes, we did. We did. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was a bloody experience to get there. And yeah. uh, her, a lot of her lyrics I recognize as stories of conversations that even her and I had together at, during that time. And a lot of the lyrics are about that. I think it was a good album. Um, but it was definitely moving away. It moved the direction that I would not have wanted to go. So they were right. Like I, I like the album, but it wasn't to me. It wasn't what I would have wanted to do at the time. And I think that you know. So in that regard, they were right. I, I wouldn't. It's not what I wanted to do. And if that's what they wanted to do, then perhaps it was better that we split it ways. But it's just unfortunate that it was the way it came. You know, like. So you know, it's 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 giving me some. I I can now speak of it from a place of perspective. You know, it's like I I, I really see what they were trying to do. And I get what they were trying to do. In some ways, I feel like maybe they should have done a new band. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, it wasn't a resentful. Like um, somebody gave me a copy of it and I listened to it and I was like, okay, this is good. I mean, I was a big fan of Emily's. Like, I mean, I thought she was a great singer. I, I still do. I mean, I, well, maybe at that point, because of the legal stuff that came up and like. Yeah, there was definitely a cold it, war going on. It became maybe less personal at that point. I mean, even though Tsunami Bomb had to have been your baby. Yeah, it was. Even at this time, all those years ago, and I, I'm sure it seems weird, it's hard for me not to think of it as that because it's like you're there for every single part of it and then it goes on without you and it feels wrong to you. And I mean, not to them, but to me, you know, and it was hard. So that was really hard and that probably contributed a lot to, you know, my stubbornness and like, no, you're not writing me out of this band. You're, you know, I'm sorry. Like, you want to keep doing it? Then you're going to probably have to send me a check. You know, it's like, and, and, I, and I recognize why that would build resentment. And I'm sorry for it, but it was hard. It was a really hard time. And, and, you know, like I said, I was so sincerely involved with it. And everything was so important, you know. And, I mean, I was crushed that night. Like, there's only been a couple times in my life I considered suicide. That was one of them. Like, I was that crushed. I mean, it was just like, it was unthinkable to me that that was happening. And that might have been part of the problem. I was so caught up. Maybe if I, I think if I was in the mode that I am now, it would be a very different situation on how I would be treating people and reacting to people. But I'm older, you know, so at that time it was just... Yeah, yeah, hindsight. Yeah. But the decision was made for them as a unit to approach you and say, we want you to leave. Yeah. And and that was also the hard part is like, wow, you all feel this way? Like I was really shocked that they all felt that way. And it took me aback. It was hurtful. And then Snowbomb continued for a couple years after you were gone. Yeah. But I think it got complicated for them. Like, like I, I've, I think she said, and you've heard, and, and she yeah. said many times, it was very difficult, I think, for yeah. them after that. A lot of things changed. And, you know, I think it kind of went into a different direction. And then finally, they just, it wasn't, it was too hard to do. They broke up around, I don't know, 2005-ish. Is that correct? 2005, 2006, 2005? maybe. 2005. I was out in three, four, five. Yeah, so 2005, so probably. What we actually did not talk about with Emily on the air when she was on was the Tsunami Bomb reunion a couple years back. That's yeah. true. Which, of course, Dominic was not in. No, I, you know, I didn't even think about make that connection until this conversation. Yeah. No, I, I wasn't, and neither was uh, Oubliette or Brian. We weren't involved. It was the last formation of Tsunami Bomb that got back together for that. And oh, it was man. a benefit for Liz, 
who was the drummer for Lucky Strike, yes, and she was having some correct. Uh, oh, yeah, brain cancer was, issues, which she is doing time. well, yeah, thankfully, good. thank God, oh, and doing really well. And um, this was a benefit at the Phoenix Theater for Liz mm-hmm. from Lucky Strike, and yeah. it was uh, the big draw was Tsunami Bomb was playing, and I believe all the proceeds were going to go to yes. her medical yeah. expenses. Yes. And were you at that show? No, I was asked not to come. You were asked not to come. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was. It, we were still caught up in a hard time. Like I yeah. said, I have a lot more perspective now, and I understand that I had my hand in plenty of things that would, you know, make everybody feel harsh. Like I'm, you know, obviously that I had to. They, you know, they and, felt and uncomfortable. Are you referencing the legal stuff? I'm referencing everything. You know, basically, I, you know, it, it, no argument. These are these are good people. These aren't evil people. You know what I mean? Oh, Emily's yeah. a wonderful person. Oh, yes. She really is. I haven't spoken to her ten years, but there's no way that person is an evil person. You know yeah. that she's not. She's wonderful. She's talented. You had her on the show. She's great. Yeah. Gabe is a really sweetheart. He's a <laughs> wonderful person. <laughs> That's a teddy bear. There's Mike, no you know, is 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 a great person. He's yes. a, you know, uh, you know, just like Brian and Courtney. I I love these people. These are great people. And Doug is yeah. he's devoted to Emily. They're wonderful people. Like you they know, really they were, are. But you <laughs> know, at the same time, wonderful people can disagree. There's only one thing about Gabe. <laughs> By the time he joined uh, Tsunami Bomb, he was a great drummer. But there was a rule. We had a house drum kit, and I would do anything to keep him off that house drum kit. <laughs> Nobody hit that kit as hard as Gabe did. did. And I think he went through several heads on the snare drum. I think I remember you, that. You go downstairs, and the, and the snare drum would be broken, and, oh, Gabe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was, he was, he's a hell of a drummer. Yeah, he is a hell of a drummer. So three months after that, you founded Love Equals Death? Yes. And then, did you play on the Tiger Army show here in 2008? Were you no, in that? I didn't. So but you we were did out play of a lot. Of, we, yeah. Because okay. no, uh, they played a Tiger Army show in 2008, but were you always in Love I Equals out. Death? No. Okay, I, le- I left uh, Love Equals Death by that time. I left Love Equals Death in 2007. Okay. And uh, they would have played that show without me. I, but we, I played with Tiger Army a number of times. Like, uh, Love Equals Death had Sean Travis as the singer. And he was in Loose Change with Jade. Yes. He went on to AFI. Yeah. And he had grown up in Ukiah with the AFI guys, as well as the Tiger Army Ukiah guys. Crew, so, yeah. so they were all part of that. So Great we were kid. very fortunate that Love Eagle's Death was given a bit, again, AFI blessing. I swear to God, I should yeah. probably check to see if Davey uh, Hunter and Jade and Adam like my new band, because <laughs> it's been a good luck charm for me, that band. How did you do that in three months? How were you able to leave a touring band that was going everywhere, and then how did you found Love Eagle's Death so quickly? I didn't want to stop. I didn't want anybody to tell me that I couldn't do something. I didn't want to feel like I wasn't a good enough musician to make it happen. I had to prove to myself that I could do it again. And it's not, you don't do it alone, of course. But at the same time, I was like, I'm not going to let anybody tell me when to stop. And there's a certain amount of stupidity. And weirdly enough, I think uh, I had a conversation with you about it, or you even called to book the band and I believe on the other end of the phone, when I heard you were in another band that quickly, I think I was rolling my eyes at you for granted. My God, you're kidding. You were already up and going? Yeah, it was dumb, but at the same no, time... No, it wasn't dumb. That was a good band. <laughs> it was a good band. Yeah, but it, people's probably should have yeah. let it breathe a little bit. But at the same time, I, I was just know. like, just didn't, like, to be, to, to kind of have, like, I mean, excuse me, like a, a full-fledged mutiny of everyone going, we don't want you in this band. Like, it was incredibly painful. And so I was just like, you know what? I'm not going to let anybody tell me what to do. Somebody asked me if I could leave if there's something that I would sum up my message of my life of what I try to portray, and it's endure. Yeah, good. <laughs> endure. Endure. That's Don't give good. up. Endure. I mean, there's. Yeah. I've been through, <laughs> I like to say that I've had an epic life. 
<laughs> and epic doesn't always mean good. Uh, I've had been fortunate enough to have some amazing experiences with some amazing people. I've found my way to some amazing people to stand next to me to help me experience some amazing moments. And I've had some terrible, terrible moments and some really hard things that were just unbelievably Shakespearean level terrible. But you never give up. Never give up. Never give in to the, that feeling of wanting to stop or fade or disappear. If You know, you have to. You have to keep going. You have to get back up on the horse. You have to find your path. And you don't know where it's going to end. I mean... I've been the lowest of the low where I thought the whole world went crazy and I couldn't believe that everything went wrong. And then I have a great life. Like you see, you don't, you don't give up. You just keep going. You can't, you can't stop. You can never stop. Good. I believe that at the end of your life, you've, you, you judged your life by the amount of stories that you can tell at the end. And those stories aren't always going to be good ones. If well, to be a good story, it can't always be good events. That's true, yeah. So you, you create a life full of stories. If you can sit down at the end of your life when your time is up and you have to answer for your life and you can tell a lot of stories about what you did, then you lived a good life. If you can't say anything about that life, then you didn't do enough. What stories do you have to tell about Love Eagle's death? Does anything stand out from that experience? Love Eagle's death was a, a, a band full of guys that were really trying hard to prove. They, I felt like that band had something to prove. Like you had me that it was coming out of... Uh, tsunami bomb and desperate to like prove that we could do something and then you had sean who basically almost all of his high school friends that were musical have all gone on to be in big bands and he was really driven to try and show that he could do it too and he was incredibly talented uh tonio who had been in 26 miles per hour for years struggling to be something you know to to that band just kept trying and trying yeah, for yeah, years. Yeah, Antonio is still out there doing it. Yeah, he's yeah, still, he plays absolutely. guitar now Yeah, in another band, I forget what it's called, but uh, so, so he was desperate to show, I mean, you know, and then Duff's and, and, and John, I mean, there was just so many great people that were involved. I mean, Duff's is the guitar player at, towards the end at, for, for a long time and he ended up being in a band called Four Knives. They're great. Yeah. Uh, absolutely talented. He plays in the UK a lot. Like, you know, so it kept going. Like, they, you know, so people were, Love You Cause Death was, was just a, it was my first uh, all guy band actually. Yeah. Actually, it was the very first band I'd been in with all guys, and it was really different for me. I, it, it was, was a, it was it was quite a bit edgier, yeah, and quite a bit harder than than a Tsunami Bomb. Yeah, a little more aggressive, but there was some catchiness to it. Like you know, because a certain amount of it's going to sound like anything I do is going to sound like certain songs. It's Tsunami yeah, Bomb. You and know, and then like, you've got weirdly enough, you've got Sean whose voice lends itself to hooks sometimes yeah. it was there were some moments that just it was the voice was perfect with they you guys. were very talented guys so yeah, yeah. yeah we very toured a lot and our live show was what got the attention of uh fat mike and he saw he saw us live here when he came uh on a show that we played i forget who we played with but he was here and it was him and joey cape they came out and they saw us and we had a pit people were going crazy it was packed house and that's what led to us getting on to Fat Records because he just liked it live. He hated the name. And how long had you been a band at that point? Uh, t- I started that band three months after getting out of Tsunami Bomb in three, 2003. And that band lasted till for me, I left in 2007, 2006. So yeah, it was three or four years that band lasted. So you had to do it all over again. All over Love again. equals death. I had to do it all over again. But I again, each you time I learned a learned. little bit more. So yeah. you, you learned and that helped, but you there was there was no connections that allowed from Tsunami Bomb days that allowed you just to be like, okay, well, I've got a new band. Let's just... Uh, I had people's attention, yeah. you know, to a certain degree. 
You know, you knew and, how to make the phone calls. Yeah, I knew. actually, and I think if you look, um, you look at the experience of tsunami bomb, love equals death. It's all led to where you are right now. Actually, yeah, it has. I mean, in the bands that I've uh, been in, like the Blast was able to do a lot of things that I think that a, a smaller band that I've you know wouldn't you wouldn't think we surprised some people by how quickly we were able to do certain things. What is wrong with the name The Blast? Is somebody already got it? Uh when we picked the name The Blast, which we had a hard time naming the band. Um if you're just tuning in now, <laughs> Dominic is telling us about his current project, which is The Blast, name about to be changed. Yeah, I think we're changing it over to Crash and Attack. The Blast, there's a band called B apostrophe L A S T, a blast from oh. Santa Cruz as a hardcore band. And they had been broken up for a long time when we started, and it turns out they're back. And wow. I think Dave Grohl produced their uh-huh. return album. Okay. And I noticed that they had called a couple clubs that we had played. We played with the we opened for the Vandals over at their Christmas show in uh, at Slim's. And, so you're uh, really doing something with yeah. Blast. That's great. Yeah, no, it, it's you know it's it's a it's a group full of really fun, really talented people, and uh, you know all my projects. It's like these are more. This is for fun, but it's like I I, I don't know. I don't. Don't do. I, we we try to do stuff. We try to make it interesting and exciting and fun. And that band is a lot of fun. And it's it goes together with the Vandals really well. Very sarcastic. We haven't gotten to play the Phoenix actually, which is yeah. Well, we should put one, that together. Right? I have three bands now. One of them's got to come out here. <laughs> oh so no, uh, that's actually news to me. I'm I'm first meeting you yeah. tonight, but I didn't know that you were still active musically. I think that's great. Yeah, I work. At, you know, now I work for the two labels, and I handle a lot of publicity and. Uh, one of the things I'm trying really hard to do is uh, help take labels, help retool the way we do things for now. Yeah, that's an interesting question that I, I've got about that. How are the labels doing? How are the indie labels doing nowadays? It's tight. It's tough. Okay. It's really tough. It's become more and more a collector's market. And to me, I feel like that's really where it sits. It's like almost to a degree that you're not like, and I had this conversation earlier with my friend. At this point, you're almost not necessarily going for new listeners you're going to try and find ways to take the listeners that you have and give them more of what they really want it's almost like i keep trying to tell the labels and everybody in music we're at we're back to the punk scene in the 80s where it was a smaller group that followed it but they followed it and loved it so if you give somebody something that's crap they're not going to be responsive but if you give something if you put out something that's collectible it's interesting. It's fun. It's cool. Somebody has a reason to brag about it. That's why I think vinyl's coming back. Yeah, vinyl's coming back. It's stronger than ever. And that's really the main... I mean, there's only four vinyl pressing companies that are doing it, and they're doing all the vinyl, and it's where everyone's keeping them busy because vinyl is... And you can make it collectible and experience. You can make yeah. it limited. And those are the things that I think are the key to the future um, is making the experience more meaningful and important. And you're trying to, like, if we can grab new listeners, then fantastic. But that's really the point that we're trying to do here is, is in a sense, the same thing that I learned in Headboard and then in Tsunami Bomb and Love Equals Death. And now that I practice with the bl- Crash and Attack, formerly <laughs> The Blast, that's really awkward to say, but we're in that transition. And with Anne Frankenstein's and the Phantom Skulls is like in my own bands and with the bands that I'm doing publicity for and promotions is that we're trying, you know, whether it be the Vandals, Jello Biafra, or it's somebody smaller like, you know, Arnacore Peace Creeps. We're trying to show them, you know, we can we, we can take what you have and we bring it to your audience and we make it something special so that people feel special. Like it's got to feel important. You know, if they're going to buy that vinyl and they're going to take it, it's like, look, I have this vinyl of this song and it has this on it and it's this color and you only have 500 of them. And it becomes more valuable. Yeah. And I think that we have to find new ways 
people who love music love music. They still, I mean, you can't tell me that it's dying. It's absolutely oh, no. obnoxious that it's dying. No, it's not dying. It's not dying. There are people who love music. There are yeah. people who love making music. And yeah. there are people who want music, all of them, and they all want it. So. You know, it, it's still, it is still a soundtrack of life. Uh, down here at the theater uh, in the afternoons when the skating is going, uh, music is an important part of that activity mm-hmm. while they're skating. We'll, we, we've got it set up so that we can play uh, kids' iPods. Yeah, and uh, absolutely, it's it's not the same scene without it. But you know what's crazy is the thing to mention to mention also is that, yeah, music isn't as valuable as it once was to everybody. That's also something that's a little tragic. That in the in our lifetime, in this very short amount of time, in these last twenty years, music has gone from being something that was very valuable to everybody to not being worth anything. But it's still meaningful, and people still want it. So you have to find ways to make what you put out meaningful and important and special and that's the key and it's mm. and that's going to be the key to the survival of these labels it's still there people still love music people still care and as long as people do and as long as there's a kid still trying to learn three chords and make them loud yes and there's another kid who really wants to hear it like there's always going to be people there's always going to be a music scene it's just we have to learn how to uh take in all the changes that have happened and the value that people place on it and you know, and transcend and it, it into feet in the theater. Yeah, and make it into something. And it's hard because, like, music, art, all these things, these are things that we appreciate years later. Like, something that somebody's doing right now is not appreciated nearly as much as it will be later. Like, art is not something you need to put food on the table. Would but. you say the same thing about one of your earlier bands, Headboard? Ah, Headboard. Ah, Headboard. Because Headboard, Headboard, you want to talk infamous. Ah, Headboard. Headboard is Headboard. infamous. Headboard's infamous. infamous. Yeah. yeah. In your words, Dominic, what was Headboard? What kind of music was it? Headboard Why was are they a, so infamous? Headboard? <laughs> why are they so infamous? Was a lark? No. No, it's not a lark. Okay, Headboard was, well, where to begin? It was a mixture of ska, pop, rock band with rapping, and it actually was ahead of its time in the sense that Black Eyed Peas is essentially also a headboard. I mean, it's a kind of the same kind of thing, but catchier and... You know, depending on where you stand, standing, more annoying. But rapped verses with sung female choruses, and it was all with a full band playing behind. And it was, it started out really innocently. Uh, our friends Glenn and Jeff and uh, Brendan DeCuso would also help out. Jeff Gershman, U.S. Pipe, Glenn Rubenstein, G-Man, and yeah. Brendan DeCuso, whose name I can't remember what his name on stage was. But anyway, they would come up. Brendan was just the yes man. He'd be like, yeah. Yes, and they would play over a dat tape, and they would open for all of our early bands like Generation Y, Nod, uh, Little Sin Frog, Space Baby, which was Brazil. Um, Like all of us would play shows, and they want to play too. They wanted to play too, but they weren't really musical. So they and they liked rap. No, yeah, and you weren't in headboard. No, no, this was them like showing up and playing. And then one day, you know, because it was uh, it was uh, uh, Jeff and and, uh, Glenn. Yeah, but also who was the other guy? There were. uh, they were doing a two-man for a minute, weren't they? Yeah. Uh, no, it was Glenn and Jeff that were doing the, the two-man over a dat player. Yeah. And that's how they wanted, because yeah, yeah. they wanted it. to play. And you know yeah. what? That's totally noble. Like, why not? Like, it was the way they were playing. And it was silly. They'd come out in chains, and they would come out in coveralls like they were prisoners, and they were, like, rapping. And they were, <laughs> you know, it was funny, and, and it was hilarious, and they were offensive, and, and it was the, good. The lyrics were edgy. Lyrics were edgy, but they not even that crazy. Offensive. <laughs> not even that crazy. But they were rapping about Petaluma and all sorts of stuff. It was pretty funny. But then one day, their DAT player broke. 
and they were struggling to figure out how they were going to play their set. And Logan got on drums. I got on bass. Logan Whitehurst got oh on drums. Oh my goodness! Logan Whitehurst was in headboard. Yeah, for a, for a minute. Oh no! You got to remember, we were all friends, and these poor guys, like their their dad player broke, and so we all stepped up and helped them. And it went well, actually. It was really funny. You yeah. remember that show, Tom? I'm not sure I remember that show. I mean, it's it's a weird thing to admit. There were a couple times that I absolutely uh, enjoyed Headboard. It wasn't bad. <laughs> what, is, what, is your, what is your takeaway from Headboard, Tom? Now we're being open here. Well, no, my takeaway is that uh, everybody, had, it was a band of good friends. I loved everybody in that band. Uh, and watching them, weirdly enough, the takeaway was how easily that band that may have started, I I never believe they started seriously expecting to do much with it. I think it was started almost as a joke, but son of a gun, for just a short second there, it looked like that band was, was going to get signed. Yeah, to a major. It we had the, a, it a mini bidding thing. war between A&M and Geffen for Headboard. It was the damnedest thing. But when I play people what Headboard sounded like, what the majors heard, it's not always what a lot of people... Uh, remember headboard being like uh, it got pretty good there for a minute, like really good. Well, you guys did that one grease tune, as I recall. Yeah, I can't it was yeah, a summer, summer love, love. summer yeah. love, but, and uh, you did it. The timing on that was what was so incredible because it was during a reissue of the movie Grease. Was yeah. that correct? And it I seemed so. to me they almost wanted to take you guys on and help promote that reissue. It was a catchy, catchy band, and it it got. It got further than you would have expected. Anybody around here? So, expected. so you didn't start the band. So you no. take criticism of Headboard is not really that personal for you. Why does Headboard inspire such hatred in some people? <sighs> hatred? <sighs> no, I don't. I don't know if it's hatred. It's uh, <sighs> no, it's Gosh. hatred. Here's the hatred? thing. Here's the thing. Uh, Glenn at the time was a booking agent here. He helped. I think, which is something you do here. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine if you were booking here as you do. And you had a band that ended up on some pretty good ska shows. Uh, you're going to get yeah. really annoyed by that because people are going to get into. He that. did. He did put his band on some good shows. Did he put his band on every show? No, not at all. You can't do that. Like nobody would agree. He only put it on the shows that he could. But he got a really bad rap for it because there were some really great shows that we got to be on that people were like, "Why are they on that show?" But sometimes the bands that were playing asked for us. Yeah. It, it wasn't a bad band, but then. No, there were in the end there were good players. Yeah. Uh, was Nick Malgeri in that band? Nick Malgeri yeah. was totally Come in the band. On, He'll Nick deny Malgeri. it, but he was in that band. No, he was in that band, and that's where I really took notice of the fact that he was a great side man. Yeah, he's a great guitar player. You bet he is. I, I he yeah. was sixteen years old and in that band. And yep. uh and he was solid. He was right, way solid. He played trumpet first, and then he played guitar. Who was drumming? Uh Alex. Alex oh my gosh, Navarro. you bet we have that drum kit here. Yeah. We actually have. His drum. I mean, that he band over the course had like 30 or 40 people. Oh yeah, totally. Tons of people. That you guys were going things. down to LA and doing TV shows. We were going to, well, that happened later. I mean, Headboard. Like, headboard did TV shows. Yeah. Yes. Headboard did TV shows. Headboard was all over the place. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I listened to it now. I played it for my wife and she was like, wow, this is terrible. Like, it's because it's very 90s. It's rap, very 90. ska, yes. weirdness. Yeah. But you know what's really funny? When we played the reunion, and we played the reunion in front of a lot of people that hated us. And this is a nostalgia fest, the right? Nostalgia so fest, every yeah. year, we didn't do one this last year, but the Phoenix hosts a nostalgia fest thing last yeah. three years. I yeah, think we hope done to it. if we can. It yeah. was a, it's a Section M thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they had headboard on it, and everybody watched it, and it went over well. And I went had over so well. many people come up to me going, I don't know why we hated you guys. You guys were pretty fun. <laughs> it's catchy. <laughs> it time, is catchy. Time heals most Yeah, time wounds. heals wounds, yeah. yeah. 
yeah. but that's really what it was. I mean, just picture yourself in a band and, and being perceived as abusing your power. And Glenn, you know, is a really talented, very smart, smart man. And he's really cool. And he was very driven. The things that you that have been alluded on me, he, he definitely had in spades in terms of like he was very driven and he knew what he wanted to do. And we were trying to learn how to take this further. And he wanted to. And you kind of got, I, I mean, I didn't intend to be in headboard. I just sort of got trapped. But I had a really good time. I mean, it was a wild little group of kids, like, having a good time. We had a lot of fun adventures, and it taught me how to do Sonoma. You did. You guys had some good adventures. Oh, great adventures, yeah. Yeah, But, but yeah, the major label thing didn't end up working out because I think it just got a little crazy. I mean, everybody's promising these big funds, uh, big sums of money, and and it was just a little crazy. And people went a little crazy. So your experiences in in Headboard and then Tsunami Bomb and then Love Equals Death, those ultimately led you to where you are right now. Yeah, eventually, uh, you know, the knowledge, getting some certain amount of knowledge of the industry has helped. I learned how to design and do a lot of art illustration. I've always been an artist, so doing that, uh, I started doing a lot of illustration for bands and posters and t-shirts and album design. And, uh, you know, eventually, like, one thing leads to another now that I'm handling publicity and promotions for a lot of bands and learning and utilizing the same lessons that I learned you know, it's it's hard to make a, a living in music, but I'm doing it, you know, and I'm having a lot of fun and working with a lot of new artists and uh, helping out uh, an industry that I do believe in, even though it's probably not the wisest industry to be in. But good Lord, you know, it's like we do it because we love it because we have to, not because we want to because we need to it makes getting up in the morning easier if yeah you, if you like what you're doing yeah and i mean you know i'm still playing music and i'm getting some great shows i have some really exciting projects and uh, i'm looking forward to seeing where they lead let me ask you something did you have to leave love equals death because of that whole thing that happened on tour yes yes uh do you want to clear the air on that and just talk about it? I know that there's plenty of documentation online about it if anybody wants to look it up. Yeah, there is. But, you know, I was accused of something awful. And it was horrible. It was the worst. You know how I made getting the tsunami bomb situation sound? Like, this was way worse. I mean, to be accused of something that is so diametrically against yourself of what you believe in and what you believe of yourself. Uh, I was accused of I was accused of rape. And I could not fathom it um what happened was uh i was uh, on tour with love equals death and we were in philadelphia and playing a show and a girl that i had met while i was in tsunami bomb and was pretty good friends with and showed up at the show and during that time i was having a lot of problems with my uh girlfriend and her and i were i i thought we were gonna break up it was it was kind of on the rocks and um she came out to the show. She came out to one show, and then she said she was going to come out to the next show the next day in Philly, and she did. And she was super cute, and we were flirting. And, you know, it's just like we went for a walk um, while we were waiting for the show to start. And during the walk, we ended up making out. And I felt kind of awkward afterwards because I kind of realized that I wasn't really done with my <laughs> girlfriend, and I hadn't broken up at the time, and I felt a little weird. And I just kind of felt, you know, we, we, as we were walking back, I, I made myself busy, you know, like with the show and, and kept myself growing. But we had made out and I, it seemed like it was okay. But then I, we went back to the show and she and our drummer ended up uh, hanging out while I was keeping myself busy. Because I felt kind of awkward, you know, like, like I said, because I still had a girlfriend. And it felt a little weird that I had done that. And they ended up going out to dinner. And they came back, she watched the show, 
And then the drummer, myself, and her went for a walk. And he pulled me aside and said that he was going to go to a hotel with her. And did I have a problem with that? And I was like, you know, he was like, I, I don't want to do anything you're going to be bummed about. I was like, nah, dude, I, I shouldn't. I'm not going to be bummed. No, it's okay. Totally fine. In fact, great. That's awesome. Because I feel weird. I didn't say that, but I was just like, good, good. So they went. And uh, she posted on my MySpace, actually, the next morning saying she had a great time. Couldn't wait for us to come back. And her and the drummer actually ended up becoming in a relationship for a couple months. Long, long distance, because we didn't live back east, obviously. We lived out here. And uh, then when she heard that we were going to come back through, she posted on my MySpace again saying she couldn't wait for us to come back. She was really excited. And then, but before we got back, her and the drummer broke up. And he said that he kind of got a little scared of her. She was acting a little crazy, kind of being threatening and weird. And so they broke up and that was that. And I didn't really talk to her or hear from her. And we were on tour and, you know, they constantly touring from place to place. So it's like really easy to not talk or think about stuff. Fast forward about five months, six months. And I get an email while I'm on tour with no effects. And she writes me and she's demanding an apology from me. Uh, in this email she goes you know i've been thinking a lot about what happened that night and i feel like you really took advantage of me and it's really bothered me and i think that you owe me an apology for what you did and i really resent it and have had a hard time with it and i got this and i was like that's how that's how it was worded almost exactly and I even told my dad about it because we were talking that night. He remembers me going like, yeah, she's kinda, the girl's kind of making a big deal about a kiss. It's kind of weird. I mean, I don't really know how to react to that. And he was like, yeah, don't, don't say anything. You know, leave it alone. Don't even respond. And I'm like, yeah, I can't do that. Like she, you know, because I had actually made things right with my girlfriend. We didn't break up. And uh, I hadn't thought about it until then. And I was like, oh, man, I don't want her to hate me. You know, I don't, I don't like that. That's not cool. And I don't really want her to like, tell my girlfriend that we made out or make a scene out of this. She's really bothered by it. I should apologize, you know? So I wrote her back and I said, Hey, listen, I never, I am so sorry if you feel that way. You're somebody I really care about. You've always been a really good friend to me. And you know, if you feel that I was out of line, then I'm so sorry. I, I will take full responsibility for it. Like, I mean, I never meant to make you feel weird and I thought we were okay. I mean, I went home and got back together with my girlfriend. You dated the drummer for a couple months and I'm really sorry. I thought we were fine, but I'm so sorry if you feel weird. I really feel bad about it. I would never try to make you feel weird and I mean it. And that's really close to what that said. Like at no time did I say anything more than that. It was all in those vague terms. She took those emails, went to the police and told them that I was admitting to raping her. And that's all it took. Fast forward a couple months later. I never hear anything back from her. I don't think about it again. Months later, I'm playing in Southern California in LA. Police show up and arrest me. And I'm like, why are you arresting me? Are you sure? What? And it's like, you Dominic Davity? He's like, yeah. And they start putting me in cuffs. And they tell me that I raped somebody in Philadelphia. I have no idea what they're talking about. I don't even think about what I just told you. I have no idea. I'm like, are you kidding? Who? And they're like, we don't know. And they arrest me. And I'm in front of everybody, which is one, embarrassing and horrible. 
and then they take me to jail and it's a Friday night. So I get to stay in jail for a whole weekend because there's no bail or anything before I get to see a court and no judge or anything until the next Monday. I don't get, I know nothing. So I spend an entire three days in jail, not knowing who had accused me. I was interrogated for hours that night by the police trying to find out anything. And I kept asking, well, who's accusing me? Who's, who would do this? And there, I was like, I have to be honest. I've never slept with anybody on the East Coast. Like, I've never had sex past Kansas. Like, I don't, I, I've never had it. I, I, don't, I don't know who you mean. I had no idea who they could possibly mean. I didn't even think of what, like, what I just told you, I didn't even think about. So I was just completely baffled. And at one point, the police officer came back and said, you know what? You clearly do not know what's going on. I was like, imagine if somebody accused you of this. I have no idea who would do this to me. He's like, well, somebody hates you. And uh, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. So I was in jail for a couple days. And I found out who it was from punknews.org. Because I found out later... um, her friends were very motivated in believing her at that time. And they felt like I was a danger. So they took it on themselves and they were involved with PETA. So they were very, uh, like very, very, uh, what would be the term? Like activism oriented. Yes. So like apparently from what I am out to understand, there was a series of stories shared and she shared a story that I had raped her that, that evening. And they became very like enraged because she had said who I was and they were like, well, he's a rapist and has to be stopped. And they pushed, you know, they were all very active and and their whole point was they were going to like stop me on her behalf and with her. So, I mean, I don't know if she was caught. I mean, I'm not her and I wasn't there (laughs) clearly, but I mean, I don't know if she was caught up in a lie. I don't know if she was trying to impress people. I don't know why she would say this. Um, but she did, and she let them push it. So they had uh, one of them put it in the paper in Philadelphia that I had been charged, and then they sent that to Punk News, and it put it up that I and it described the incident and the show, and it kind of gave a rough description. And I was in jail, and it was read to me by my mother, and I found out from Punk News why I was in jail because nobody knew, and I had no idea. And I just couldn't believe it. So they, I was, and so they brought it out in public on purpose because I was, to, to them, I was a rapist. And to me, it was like the world had gone insane because I had no idea what was going on. And it became a long battle because they were trying to extradite me. My parents left me, in, you know, I was in jail for a little bit because we were trying to like get it worked out because this was ridiculous. And eventually I had to, I got a lawyer for California. Then I had to get a lawyer for Philadelphia I had to fly back and forth and love equals death. The members didn't even know what to think. And I found out later from Sean when he and I had a talk that they thought that I knew about this before this happened. And I didn't, it it was a surprise, but they thought I knew and hid it from them for some reason. But they asked said that I should probably leave the band, you know, in the interest of sparing them. And, you know, it was hard because they weren't there and they didn't know until later. Like some of the things and like, you know, some of them haven't talked to me since and I've had apologies. The drummer was a really hard one because the drummer to me knew what had happened because the drummer had slept with her that night, you know? And, um, but he was, 
scared, he said. He was really scared about what happened. And he says that, you know, to his credit, I will say, he's, he's called me later and said that he's regretted his actions and how he handled it. But, I mean, he was just so freaked out over the whole thing that he couldn't do anything. So no one stepped forward? No. Like, my, I mean, the other guys your in the band, band... Your band members did not step forward? They didn't know, like, two of them didn't know. The drummer who did know apparently was too scared to do so. Did any of them believe that you had done it? They kept saying they didn't know. And... The drummer said at one point that she was acting weird to me, or weird about me, seemed bothered about me, you know, so he did say that. But, uh, so, to make a long story short, basically, uh, it became a very long legal battle, but her story kept changing, and when we went to the first deposition, her, she started telling her story, and it was completely different from the story that she had submitted, like, 100% different, like all the actions, the pacing, the, the moments, everything. Like her accusations, we went to that park and I had raped her there. But like the way she described it, like the details were counteractive to what they're saying. And the judge pointed it out. This doesn't seem to match your story. And then my lawyer pointed out, like, I can't talk during a deposition, but she can. But then the lawyer said, hey, did you post on his MySpace the next day? Is this you? And she was like, yeah, like that you had a great time and you can't wait to see him again. Does that sound like somebody who got raped? You stayed at the show, didn't you? She's like, yeah. So a bunch of stuff came out, and the judge even said at that point, he's like, if I could throw this all out legally, I, could, I would. But I can't. Because the email, I was admitting to something, and they said, like, there's something that happened here. But obviously, the story we're getting is, in, is strange. And he's like, I wish I could throw it out. He threw out a bunch of charges at that moment. Because I, I had a laundry list of charges at first. And so he threw out everything but a few things. I think it was like sexual assault and rape and the main rape charge. He's like, I can't throw out everything, but I would if I could. And he looked at the prosecutor. He's like, I would if I could. So you better think about going forward. So then it became a big fight. And I thought that I had, I finally could prove at least something because I had proof that she went to the hotel with the drummer because I had his name at the counter that he signed for the room, but she paid for it. So that night she'd slept, she'd stayed, she stayed with him. And I had the emails, the, the MySpace postings from her the next day and three months later saying that she was really excited to see me. So there it was. But in uh, Philadelphia, there was a rape shield law. And the rape shield law meant that anything that had occurred from the moment of the attack, supposed attack, to the moment of the trial could not be used against her. So technically, the prosecution pushed to have all that sealed and not be mentioned to a jury. So the main proof that would show her actions after being supposedly brutally raped, I couldn't show to a court. So that made things hard. And the plan was to try and just like to pierce through that. And you got to remember, I'm paying out the ear. I've paid for two lawyers. I'm going back and forth. And about this point, I ran out of money. And I was told that it was going to cost a minimum of about fifteen to 20000 to go to court. And uh, I was out. And my girlfriend at the time said maybe she could start stripping to raise the money. My dad said that maybe he could like mortgage his house. My mom was going to go come out of retirement, start working again. And I had to put a stop to it. So I was like, this is not cool. And uh, the prosecutor, and around that same time, the prosecutor came to us and said, look, I know he didn't rape her. You know he didn't rape her. We all know that didn't happen. Okay? Clear. But you can't prove it. He's like, you can't 
you can't use any of this. So I got you over a barrel. So here's what I'm going to offer. No sexual charges. We're going to throw out everything. You plead guilty to indecent, uh, what was it? Uh, a misdemeanor to indecent assault. And it's a charge that's supposed to cover like grabbing a girl's butt at a bar or kissing her. And his, and his statement was like, your client has admitted the entire time that you kissed her, that he kissed her. And I said, I have always said that. That's all that happened. It's like, okay, well, clearly she didn't like it. So no sexual charges, no Megan's Law, no jail time, no anything. Because I was accepted. I was accepted nothing. I got a call offers before that. And I was like, no, I'm innocent. No. And then my lawyer pulled me aside and he's like, look, two years probation. That's it. You can go home. You just call in. You didn't do anything. Uh, it's going to cost you fifteen to 20000 to go to court. Take it. And I mean, like I said, my parents, my family was ready to do all this stuff to try and pay for it. But it was just like, we were out of money. I was in so much debt already. I'd maxed out all my cards and everything. So, so I accepted it. And I, it, it's frustrating because I didn't do it. And I wasn't guilty of kissing somebody who didn't want me to kiss them. Like I would never do that. And it was really frustrating to have that be the resolution. And uh, because, you know, I learned a lot about celebrity at that point because a lot of people didn't like, you know, it was really interesting to, you know, this was a topic of conversation for everybody. And then the way it ended wasn't such like this star, like I, I wasn't completely, you know, exonerated. It was just sort of a whimpering kind of, and then it fell apart because the prosecutor knew that she couldn't, couldn't do it. And I couldn't, I, it was like a, a, the prosecutor offered me that deal because he couldn't prove that I raped anybody and he knew it and he knew that I didn't do it. And I couldn't prove that I was completely innocent because I can't show the evidence to the jury. We'd have to convince the judge to pierce the rape shield law to allow us to show those details. I mean, even the, my, but it was frustrating. So I had to take that. You know, uh, and, and the, uh, even my probation officer one day, a couple months later, opened up my file and looked at me and says, why are you here? Like, I'm looking at the evidence. You should, you shouldn't be guilty. He could see everything. He looked at, cause he didn't understand who, why I was there. Like after seeing, for first he treated me like crap, but after he got to know me, he was like, why are you here? And I'd explain to him the story and he couldn't believe it. And they even pushed for me for an early release. Did you did you have to spend the, the entire two years in Philadelphia? I did because California doesn't have the law of a decent indecent assault. So to come back here would mean that I would have to take the charge of sexual assault, and that would put me on Megan's Law out here. The Petaluma Police Chief and the General, and then also the Attorney General of California, both told me through my lawyer, "Do yourself if you were my son, I'd send you to Philly. Go to Philly." It's a misdemeanor. So I had a month and I had to pack up and leave for Philadelphia. And that, I, uh, that was hard. And that was 2007, 2008? 2008. Because it took a year to fight that. And then uh, I spent, then she moved to Philly nearby me. That was awful. Um, and I ended up later getting contacted by, at one point I got a letter from her boyfriend. He wrote me on MySpace. I still have it. And he said, listen, I don't know you. And there's no reason I have not to believe that you didn't do what she said you did. Why should I not? Why should I not believe her? 
I always thought that you that something bad had happened to her from you and that, that it went down. But now her and I are breaking up. And she has now told everybody and accused me of beating her. And I have never laid a hand on her in my life. And now I'm freaked out. Because I have actually read about your story and what you had to say about it. And I realized that you didn't do anything, did you? He's like, what do I do? What should I do? I went to my probation officer and my lawyer and they said, don't talk to her. And I asked my lawyer to write him back. Hopefully he did. And I said, and the lawyer was just like, get a lawyer immediately. And I hope he's okay. But that happened after that. And, you know, nobody there's, but the problem was there was no, like, you know, and I don't know, I did get to write a letter and, and post it and punk news, put it up and people heard about it. And I know that I get the impression now in the scene that people feel like, they don't know exactly what went wrong, but they know I got screwed somehow. That's generally the impression. So it's not as awful as it could be. It's not like people remember me just as that. I haven't ever had that. And I've never had any bad. Uh, I do think it's cost me some jobs because when you Google me, it does come up and people don't stop to read everything. They just see that like that happened. Um, the thing I can't forgive is I remember reading punk news and I saw a, a phrase, a, a posting from somebody anonymous and it was, and I'll never forget this. This is one of the reasons why this has always been hard. And this is why I can, I, I, I can forgive a lot, but I, I'm never going to be able to forgive this, uh, her doing this. Because this person, this kid, wrote on Punk News under the column of me getting arrested. I always thought that he was a nice guy. I guess I was wrong. I have no way to ever know if that person, girl or guy, I think it was a girl for some reason. I have no way of knowing if they ever found out that I didn't do it. They might have only known that they might. And I'm sure they don't think about it, but like, I've never forgotten that phrase. And that's one of the things I can't forgive is because there were people out there like at that callously. And I mean, as this went on, her story changed. All those people that were pushing her faded away. They were gone by the end. Uh, I, I still can't believe that that letter could get me arrested, but it could, it can, it easily can. And that's how it works. And I mean, I understand why people, you know, took the stance and a lot of people have come up to me and apologized since, you know, for not like, you know, being unsure and everything, but, and I get it. Like, I mean, you know, I would assume the same that, you know, because a man could do it, it probably did do it. And I mean, it's a small percentage that doesn't, but like the end of my life, when I have to face up for the things that I have done wrong in my life, that's not going to be one of them. I did not do that to that person and nothing even close and I still don't know completely why she did it, why she would do it, or why it's it set up so that she could do it with such flimsy evidence of, of nothing. Nothing. A year later could put me in jail and make me look horrible to everybody. But, you know, and that was the, I had mentioned before, it was two times in my life that I felt suicidal. That was one of them. Definitely, because it's just like, and I realized I couldn't, I can't do anything like that. I can't let go because like what, what everyone's, if I kill, if I would have killed myself, everyone would think I was guilty. Like it was also again, enduring and being stubborn. I could not let that happen. And, uh, it's hard. It's really hard because now that's part of my story and I hate it. But at the same time, it hasn't changed my thing. I do feel really strongly about rape and I feel really strongly about education and empowering women and making sure that they aren't they are educated and strong enough that that is not a tool or a weapon also that if they are raped they don't wait a year 
like you know that's something that they should be it should be handled immediately and not allowed yeah. to just sit and fester i mean and it and we shouldn't be just you know picking up something out of nowhere but i mean it's like you know it's a complex range of feelings you don't uh, i recognize i'm part of a very small minority of people who were falsely accused and didn't actually do it because it, it happens a lot there's a lot of people who get rid of it you know way too many people women that i know who have been assaulted and you know i'm sure you both know yeah and it's hard it's, it's a, a horrible huge, thing huge problem this so it, it's a terrible thing to have been accused of i mean and and it's yeah so it haunts me a little bit like when i got hired i had to t- you know even getting hired at my latest job i had to sit down and talk about it i mean joe escalante from the vandals and the owner of kung fu was in my corner from the beginning and a lot of people have come around and and been really really great like i said i do believe that my reputation is one of nobody knows exactly how it went down but that i mostly just had a really hard time and something really bad happened but it was hard well i mean we talk you know we've talked about all the stuff you did up to that point and then you leaving love equals death because of that yeah and then two years in philadelphia yeah i couldn't do anything wasn't allowed to tour uh, i got asked to do a couple tours and a couple different things but uh they wouldn't let me because it was too much paperwork. And what did you do in Philadelphia for two years? Thought. Uh, I ended up starting um, a design company called the Dinosaur Factory. Uh, I did a lot of artwork and kind of tried to refine my illustration skills a little bit more. I couldn't really, I didn't really know any players out there. By the time I met some, you know, my time there was almost done. Uh, I did a lot of thinking. You know, I worked in a restaurant and, uh, Worked on, tried to work on an animation, animated show, got canceled before it even got started, but just kind of um, reflected a lot on what had happened. It took a while to get over it. It was really painful. I mean, yeah. you question your own sanity when everybody kind of believes that you did something and then there's people accusing you of doing something and you can't seem to show that you didn't and you don't know why they, that doesn't work. Like, how could you be brutally raped and then go sleep with somebody that night? Why would you stay there? Why would you post on my thing? Why is that not enough? Like, if this is enough to get me arrested, why is this comment the very next morning saying, I had a great time, can't wait to see you again, I miss you guys so much, does not miss you so much, to me, not enough to end it. There's people that might hear this if this ends up in this interview, and, and it's, it's fine if it does. I told you that everything's fine to talk about, but uh, that don't know this. Because it's hard. I mean, how do, you, how do you say this? You know, but it's still yeah. up there. You Google me, it's there. I realized like, okay, so it sits there on Google and it's part of my story. And if I stopped and did nothing more in life and, or I don't want to say nothing more, but if I, if I didn't try to do the things that I love to do and put myself out there and, and face these kind of things and these kind of questions and this kind of story and not accept that I have to talk about it, then that's the end of me. That's the last thing that that person wherever they are, who thought that I was a nice guy and doesn't think that I might be, was wrong, thought that they were wrong. It's the last thing that they ever hear. And I can't let that happen. Wow. Like, I can't let that. I mean, I may never reach that particular person. I don't know who they were. But, like, for the sake of my own sanity and myself of feeling better, I have to endure it and face it and move forward. And this is part of it. There's other interviews that I'm being asked to do and I'm going to be asked to do of some of these new projects that are coming out, whether it be the comic books that are coming out or the new bands or, um, you know, anything. And I have to face it. And the only way that that thing is going to come off Google or that thing is going to get pushed back in my history as part of my, as a, as a, 
a footnote rather than a major chapter is if I do more and be more and try for more with friends. And, and I'm lucky enough to have a lot of wonderful people who are helping that. That's in your makeup anyway. If, if you look at, at the list of, of where you've been, it's it's always been a part of who you are anyway. You, you've always been pretty forward. Yeah, pretty, pretty stubborn. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are many notable people, bigger celebrities than you'd ever know, basketball players, musicians, actors who have been accused of things that maybe they did, maybe they didn't do. Right. But regardless of whether they did it or whether they didn't do it, and I'm not making commentary on no, you no. when I say that, even if people want it to, it doesn't negate the accomplishments that they've made in their personal life and in their creative life. And, you know, you're, you do not want to be defined by something that... No, you know, it drives me crazy when people say, like, I have to say, when you ask, like, is there anything, like, bother you about this term or this or that? And it's like, lucky. Man, you're lucky. I'm lucky? I'm lucky. Why? And I've had people say, because it didn't get worse. I was like, how much worse can it be when you didn't do it? Like, what, you expect me to be considered guilty? I didn't do it. Like, I mean, but I was publicly out, you know, it's just terrible. Yeah, it was, it's so, so it's hard to hear stuff like that. Like, I, I don't feel like I was very lucky during that time. I feel like no. I was actually unlucky because I wasn't completely exonerated and I wasn't able to clear it. But now I'm married yeah. to an amazing woman. Yeah. She's a, a professional model and burlesque dancer. She's amazing. and She's my soulmate. She's the best thing that's ever happened to me. I have a lot of great friends. I work for a lot of amazing people, and I'm getting to yeah. do some really astounding creative stuff that is beyond like what I ever expected. And I have had an interesting enough life where you guys would bring me in here and ask me questions. Like that's an amazing thing. And like, that's and not at all lucky, <laughs> not at all lucky. fortunate. How about that? <laughs> okay, <laughs> Fortunate, fortunate. Yeah. I mean, people give up on their creative endeavors and pursuits just because they hit a certain age, let alone having tremendous lows. So it's a credit to you, no matter what, Thank Anybody you. says or thinks or w- what has happened in your life, it's a credit to you that not only do you continue doing, but you continue doing things on a level where people are paying you to do those things. Thank you. I mean, uh, it's if, if anything is to be taken away from what I've been through is that yeah, I would want somebody to think, don't give up. I mean, don't. Don't let yourself, you know, there's no reason to, if you love something, don't do it to, to be some big rock star or some thing. Do it because you love it and because you believe in it and yeah. it's important to you and you feel like you can leave something behind. And if people hate it, people hate it. But if people love it, great. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, it's important is to, to create and to do something and to leave something behind. And there's lots of ways to do that. For me, it's with art and music and photography and but for someone else, it could be something completely different, and it, and it should be. And it's, you know, this is, this is, we only get one shot at this. Even if you believe in reincarnation, you believe in anything, this, this is the only life that you get to be you. Yeah. And, and it's up to you with how you're going to treat it. You can't control everything. Things are going to happen. Horrible things are going to happen. That's life. But you got to try and make the best of it. I mean, Tom has, like, with this theater and your work here, has made, you know, continued this amazing place that has affected a lot of lives, including mine. And I owe my, a lot of my life how it's gone to what the decisions that Tom made in his life and, and what you're doing That's right a dangerous now. thought. It's a dangerous thought, yeah. but come on, it's an amazing thing. There's a lot of people, and I'm not the only person that's been inspired here. You know, it's like Logan's life was an incredible oh, life that he boy. got to live until we, Logan Whitehurst, until he, yeah. he was taken from us. And 
he made wonderful things and this theater gave him an opportunity to do that and he, would he have been able to be as prolific during his time and affect so many of us that we mention him in interviews so oh, often yeah, every time but Life's you know it, it's, it's a happen. symbiotic relationship because you guys have also been would have made this theater keep going i mean it's it, we you've gotten a lot out of the theater the theater has gotten a lot out of you i hope and, so uh, oh yeah it absolutely <laughs> has well <laughs> you have any, quite a story a yeah, bunch of series of stories <laughs> I can speak for myself only when I say I appreciate you talking about the good times and the bad times. And uh, I do too. This was uh, this was a, a powerful conversation. Thank tonight. you. Well, thank yeah, you for having me, you. you guys. I really love the show, and I'm really honored to be on it. Oh boy. Well, thank you, Dominic Davi. Thank you, Tom Gaffey. Uh, thank you, Jim. Thank good you, good heavens. And we yeah. say good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>